Hello, and welcome to the Indian Ocean World podcast. My name is Sam Gleave-Riemann, and I'm a research assistant here at the Indian Ocean World Center at McGill University, Montreal, where, among other things, I produce this podcast. For this show, I am thrilled to be in conversation with Dr. Sophie Chow. Dr. Chow is an environmental anthropologist and environmental humanities scholar interested in the intersections of capitalism, ecology, indigeneity, health, and justice in the Pacific. Having earned her PhD in anthropology at Macri University in 2019, she is now a DECRA fellow and lecturer at the University of Sydney. Prior to her academic career, she worked for the Indigenous Rights Organization's Forest Peoples Program in the United Kingdom and Indonesia. She is the author of, among other things, In the Shadow of the Palms, More Than Human Becomings in West Papua, which was published in 2022 with Duke University Press. In this episode, we will be discussing two of her recent shorter pieces, the first, The Beetle or the Bug, Multi-Species Politics in a West Papuan Palm Plantation, which was first published in 2021 in American Anthropologist, and then revised as The Multi-Species World of Oil Palm, Indigenous Marin Perspectives on Plantation Ecologies in West Papua, as a book chapter in Global Plantations in the Modern World this year. Dr. Chow, thank you very much for agreeing to this interview and welcome. Hi, Samuel. Thanks so much for being in conversation and greetings to everybody tuning into this podcast. Perfect. As our first question, of course, we always like to get a little bit of background. So how did you first come to West Papua? What questions drew you to this particular research project? And who are the players in this story, human or otherwise? Thanks, Samuel. Um, so before I answer that, I um, just want to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you uh, from the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation here in Sydney, Australia. And I want to acknowledge Gadigal elders past, present and emergent, and also Gadigal kin, human, vegetal, animal and elemental. Uh, so I first visited the Indonesian-occupied region of West Papua in 2011, when I was working for the human rights organization Forest Peoples Program. And at that time, I was conducting uh, extensive investigative research uh, together with indigenous coalitions to document the adverse social and environmental impacts of deforestation and industrial oil palm plantation expansion in the region. Um, I decided to do PhD research and long-term immersive participant observation in West Papua uh, because I quickly came to realize that the human rights discourse or the human rights framing um, that we were deploying in this land advocacy didn't quite do justice to or didn't quite capture the complexity, the nuance and the textures of how indigenous marine peoples themselves understood relationships with the natural world, with the environment and with its diverse human and more than human protagonists. So I went off and did 21 months of fieldwork in uh, three different Papuan settlements um, on the border with, with, with Papua New Guinea. Uh, and the players in the stories that I was entrusted with and um, that I was privileged to learn um, in the companionship of my Papuan friends um, are multiple and they're more than human. They include indigenous Papuan communities, particularly the Marind peoples whom I was working with, but they also include Indonesian migrants who have settled in West Papua. They include plantation laborers and workers. They include the Indonesian government, the military, and also multinational conglomerates. And then they also include a whole array of non-human critters, your oil palms, your plantation parasites and mutualists, 
your native plants and animals, your elements, your climates, your atmospheres, all of whom are actors and are protagonists because they are perceived by Marind as beings and persons in their own right, as subjects of justice, and as consequential world makers and unmakers on this emerging plantation frontier. That's wonderful. I, I love how you phrase uh, things as critters. I love that terminology and you use that in your writing as well. So I, I guess as a follow-up question, I was wondering if you could explain who are the beetle and the bug in the title of the earlier version of this paper? What are they doing on the palm plantations and how do your modern informants relate to them? Sure. Um, so the title of the article um, draws on two particular organisms um, who were often pointed out to me by my Papuan friends as we would be walking through plantations um, or more often trespassing plantations, given that these are privatized corporate natures now. Um, the beetle refers to the rhinoceros beetle, or Orichthys rhinoceros, uh, which is a prevalent parasite of the oil palm plant. Um, it can cause rampant epidemics. Um, it buries into the front the fruit, the roots of this tree, uh, and it can bring down hundreds of palms in a matter of weeks. Um, so it's a real nightmare for many of these palm oil operators. The bug refers to the yellow assassin bug, or Cosmolestus pisciceps, which many of my marine friends describe not as an enemy of the oil palm, but as its friend. Why? Because this is an animal, uh, an insect that eats the larvae of the rhinoceros beetle, and in doing so actually shields or protects the cash crop from the devastating impacts of the beetle as parasite or enemy. So these two sort of actors um, symbolize or index two different kinds of relationships across species lines, right? Um, one parasitic, one mutualist, each of whom is um, either lively or lethal, um, either sustaining the growth of this plant or undermining it. And these symbiotic relationships um, in turn bear profound moral and political significance for marine themselves. Those who are working in the plantation sector are charged with killing the beetles and protecting the bugs, right? At the same time as they see the beetle or the parasite as undermining the life of a plant or palm that is itself undermining so many aspects of Marin's traditional life world and relationships to a rapidly changing environment. So that's where the significance of these two critters comes into play, right? It's in the ways in which they amplify or replicate or resonate with Marin's own conflictual relationships with plantations and oil palm as bearers of hope and possibility, but also as highly destructive and ravages capitalist natures. That's all so wonderful. And there's a couple of different directions that I want to go from that. But first of all, could I just uh, draw attention to the anecdote that you begin both of these, uh, both of these versions of this paper with? Um, it's an encounter not with two species of insect, but with two species of fungi. Can you speak to that a little bit too? Um, do these different kinds of critters, uh, so insects, fungi, microbiota, others, do they inhabit these ecologies in the same way? And do your modern friends and informants interact with them in some ways? Sure. Um, so yeah, I, I often tend to start articles um, or chapters with these stories or anecdotes because so much of the theorization that then comes from that is very much rooted or grounded or earthed uh, in practices and discourses and critiques um, that I documented or participated in during the fieldwork. Um, and as you rightly point out, the story sort of starts with a juxtaposition of two different species of fungi, um, the paddy straw mushroom and Ganoderma. Um, 
Um, and the reason why my friend um, Gerfasius, with whom I was walking through this plantation, identified these two fungi is that they bear different kinds of relationships to the oil palm plant. Um, you know, the one parasitic, the other mutualist. Um, Ganoderma is often called the cancer of oil palm in the sense that it's a fungi that is incredibly difficult to control and to contain. Um, it's very expensive and difficult to manage. Um, it spreads subterraneously and can remain dormant for a very, very long time before sort of exploding um, into action. So it's it's an enemy of the oil palm, right? And in that respect, it's very different to the paddy straw mushroom, um, which uh, feeds off rotting fresh food bunches that finds uh, fodder and future um, in uh, rotting palm fronds um, that when it be decomposes um, itself, um, enhances the nourishment within the soil and its diverse communities of bacteria and microbes that then in turn sustains the plantation's health. Um, so again, we're back to this sort of friends and enemies distinction here, um, which in some ways transcends species distinctions, right? Um, I use the term multi-species in the article and in the chapter, but of course, that is not an idiom that marined themselves would use. Um, they talk about what we refer to as species as either uh, kin, as companions, as enemies, as friends, as colonizers, as siblings, as grandparents. And all of those idioms really depend on the particular kind of relationship that these communities of life entertain with particular communities of humans and also other than humans that they are bound with in symbiotic relationships. Um, so one of the biggest challenges in thinking through these fungi and also the beetle and the bug was how do I convey those indigenous taxonomies of life, um, whilst also bringing to the fore the species-based um, idioms and categories through which the reader might be able to apprehend these critters, um, and how do we sort of think through the distinctions between scientific, cultural, affective, ethical, and political ways of classifying life through their relations to differently situated humans. I... I... That's perfect because I also wanted to follow up on exactly that point. I, I was really struck when I was reading your writing um, how you center the modern discourse of friends and enemies, but also use sort of Latinate scientific terms like parasite and mutualist and symbiosis and things like that. How do you work with these two systems together? What is the significance of the marriage discourse here? And how neatly can we translate their taxonomies into English? Thanks, Simon. That's a really brilliant question. Um, and it's one that, um, yeah, keeps me up at night in all kinds of necessary ways. Um, because it's a, it's, it touches on a much broader sort of, uh, question of the politics of knowledge production and representation, right? And that's sort of, um, labor of translation and the slippages that can occur as one tries to navigate across different epistemologies or ways of knowing, right? Um, and avoid imposing, you know, one particular epistemology over another, uh, which would then, of course, replicate um, exactly the kinds of epistemic hierarchies that are at the, at the core of so much of the plantation logic. Um, so in this instance, the language of mutualist and parasites um, was one that many of my marine friends themselves used, uh, particularly those who are now working in the oil palm nexus uh, in the capacity of fresh fruit harvesters or pesticide sprayers um, and so forth, right? So they have uh, learned this sort of agronomic um, lingo, uh, and they themselves identify resonances with the ways they might describe these species as either friends or enemies. So there's an interesting kind of overlap at play here. Um, one of the spaces where an important distinction comes to light, however, is, is when it comes to this question of symbiosis, right? 
symbiosis is a word that Marine themselves would not, would not use. It's very prevalent in the sort of uh, scholarly discourses that I'm in conversation with, multi-species studies, the environmental humanities. Um, but often what happens um, in those sorts of uh, spaces is that symbiosis is often understood uh, primarily in a, in a positive light, right, um, to suggest a mutually beneficial relationship. Parasitism is also a form of symbiosis, right? Um, except it's one in which one party benefits or thrives at the expense of the other, rather than by living together. Um, so one thing that Marine Discourses of Friendship and Enemyship taught me was that we have to be really careful when we talk about symbiosis and not just think about it as harmonious coexistence. Um, and in fact, also attend to the fact that um, hospitality is also hostility when it comes to interspecies relationships. And that sy symbiosis in the scientific sense of the term actually encompasses both, but is often sort of glossed um, or accrues as veneer of beneficiality across species lines that doesn't quite do justice to what's actually happening in ecological terms, if that makes sense. That does make sense. Yes. And I'm sure there's a lot more that we could say about that in terms of broader epistemic uh, questions as well. Perhaps then I, I we should recenter ourselves in a, a broader academic conversation and talk a little bit more about the framing here as well, because you also invoke uh, the plantationocene and you contrast that term with the more widely used anthropocene. Why? How does plantation scene scholarship help uh, in this particular context? Is it a useful frame of advice here, more so than the Anthropocene perhaps? And how does your research and understanding of multi-species interactions in the plantation setting challenge or refine how the plantation scene is regularly understood? Thanks, Samuel. It's such an important question that you're asking and a really important temporal juncture as well, um, because the coining of this term plantation scene um, a few years back has itself uh, led to a, um, you know, the emergence of some really lively and critical debates um, around the framing of this epoch through the language of the plantation. Um, and, you know, for me, uh, you know, the first thing I want to say is that there has been uh, an explosion, a proliferation of scenes um, in the last decade or so to try to capture um, the essence of or core of this spatio-temporal, um, you know, epoch we inhabit. Um, and I, I don't necessarily want to, um, you know, indulge in the coining of yet more neologisms. Um, in fact, I think neocene is one of those scenes. Um, but the plantation scene is really helpful for me in the sense that, um, well, unlike Anthropocene, that sort of flattens internal difference and hierarchies within the very category of the human, uh, plantation is seen draws attention to a particular productionist system and ecology, right? And um, alongside its racial ecological dimensions. Uh, in that respect, it's also different to the capitalist scene. And um, the capitalist scene focuses on capitalism and capital and, ca and commodification, all very, very, very good to think with when it comes to the plantation as a productionist system, uh, but one that doesn't attend to the specificities of the plantation itself, right? the regimes of monocropping, uh, the simplification of nature, the harnessing of non-human um, vitality and metabolisms as a kind of work, right? The, the cash crop is doing work here. Uh, plantations are only possible because of the metabolic and photosynthetic labor that the oil palm tree itself does. So the plantation is seen, draws attention to the plantation and of course to the plant. 
The specific vegetal actor in question, that in this instance is opam, but could also be cotton, soy, sugarcane, so many other um, organisms. Uh, and in that sense, I feel that it opens space um, to think about questions of race and capitalism and human exceptionalism, but also to make space for the agentivities and the materialities and the life histories, the biographies, if you wish, of plants themselves as world makers, as world unmakers, as entities that travel, as commodities as plants and products. Um, and all of that, for me, enriches the way we understand capitalism as a generic form through attending to its specificity across time and space. And also, um, as critical race studies and indigenous studies have exhorted for us to not, in the process, uh, elide or efface uh, the long-standing histories of human you know, racialization, exceptionalism, hierarchies that have been so historically tethered to both the plantation as an agro-industrial form and to its multiple afterlives well beyond the plantation itself. I, I really appreciate that. I appreciate in particular how you leave open the possibility of multiple temporalities. Uh, I think that's that's important here as well. Um, but if, if we're talking about temporalities, can we talk briefly in both of these, uh, the versions of these papers, uh, you speak briefly about um, earlier history in West Papua, uh, so earlier colonial projects back to the beginning of the 20th century and the period of Dutch occupation. Uh, I wonder if you could speak a little bit more to our audience of primarily historians, uh, a little bit more about these earlier projects and uh, historical memory in this place and in this period. Does oil palm cultivation differ from these earlier projects and uh, how do the Maoran people remember? this earlier history. Thanks, Samuel. Um, yeah, so um, while the sorts of oil palm plantations that I've been researching have only really uh, started to spread in Papua um, in the last decade, really since 2008, um, the global food, fuel and finance crisis. And um, there is a much longer history of agribusiness um, development in the region, which, as you said, uh, dates back to the uh, Dutch colonial occupation and was an amplified or accelerated following Indonesian occupation. Um, so in the sort of early 20th century uh, and, you know, up to the mid 20th century, uh, many of these projects were focused on rice cultivation and paddy fields, as well as peanut cultivation and various um, uh, tubers and legumes. Um, they tended to be established more along the coastal areas of Papua, so not in the hinterlands where I conducted most of my fieldwork, um, a region that, um, you know, long evaded the gaze and control of colonial agents um, because of the swampy, marshy sort of terrain that we're talking about. Um, um, and, you know, a lot of these projects were um, relatively small in scale, right? And uh, nothing like the 200 to 300,000 hectare size contessions or plantations that we're seeing today and, and that often operate not on their own, but rather as part of a much broader mosaic or patchwork of different extractive industries, right? So you'll have a 300,000 hectare plantation that is nested um, amidst a, a, a mine, um, a pulp and paper plantation, plantation and a rice cultivation scheme, right? This is like patchy landscapes of extraction and um, to borrow Anna Singh's uh, term. Um, so, but there have been some important legacies from the uh, these earlier um, agribusiness projects, even if they were remote from where I was working and much smaller in scale. One is that one is the introduction of um, non-native species into West Papua, right? So for instance, rice, um, peanuts, um, more recently, or palm species that uh, are meaningful to marine because they don't quite 
have a place within their indigenous multi-species cosmologies. Uh, and they were often described as colonizers um, in the very same way that their human agents were also described as occupiers, right? Beings who are taking over land and are not uh, forging mutually beneficial relationships with the pre-existing custodians and inhabitants or dwellers of these Papuan territories. Another way in which um, these earlier projects bear ongoing legacies is through the way that they shape marine temporalities, right? So um, temporalities in the sense of the particular ways in which marine themselves understand time, its passing, and its relationship, um, you know, across space and across community. Um, and one of the most prevalent ways in which people sort of um, classify time is through a series of episodic ruptures in time that have, over time, actually undermined the ability of time itself to move forward. Um, so there's kind of a sense of a slowing down, a grinding down of time. Um, and time here is not this abstract sort of linear arrow. Um, it's something that's embodied. It's material, right? Time can be read in the landscape. It's inscribed in species. Um, you follow it through the movement of waters and clouds and organisms in the landscape. We are talking about a very, very concrete, um, you know, physical sense of time here. Uh, and people will talk about time as, um, you know, through episodic ruptures, uh, the arrival of the Dutch uh, missionaries, for instance, um, under whose presence so many of their multi-species relations and spiritual worldviews were recast as backward and primitive. Then the occupation um, by Indonesia in the 1960s, which saw the massive theft of sovereignty over land, bodies and futures um, and the uh, denial of, uh, you know, free prior or informed consent when it came to independence and autonomy. The latest episodic rupture and for many marines is the arrival of Orpam, a, a plan that is very much seen to sever the relations in time and space of marine to their native plant and animal kin, one that is said to eat the land and devour the river waters, um, one that is said not to know how to forge good relations with the beings whose territories it occupies. Um, and all of that has sort of led to a cumulative sense that the present moment is one in which time has come to a stop. Um, and this is the way that many marines would describe the present juncture, right? Time is, time is no longer advancing. Uh, and in fact, the particular futures that are being imposed on marine are not theirs to control, right? They are progressivist, developmentalistic, modernistic futures that are so often tethered to the plantation project. And all time is often called the tree of hope in government and state rhetoric, this plant that will supposedly purportedly bring progress to marine peoples, um, and which, of course, in doing so, recasts the intimate and ancestral relations and practices that they have always sustained as primitive and in need of you know, um, salvation. So those are some of the many ways in which those legacies of um, capitalist incursion and developmentality continue to shape indigenous ways of perceiving and inhabiting time and also its ruptures. Yes, that, that's fantastic. Uh, and obviously links back to our discussion with the plantation scene in, in some really uh, key ways, especially, you know, the plant in the plantation scene, which I'd never thought of before. I suppose then one final question before our final, final question is uh, about how you end both versions of this paper, where you explain that uh, a certain cover plant that was introduced on the oil palm plantations ended up going rogue and forcing several operations in the area you were researching to, to close. Can you explain in more detail what happened? Any updates since the time of publication? What are the implications for your research? And did these events uh, inform your revisions when you were 
coming to the second version of this paper. Sure. Um, yeah, so I, I end the piece with the, this sort of coda of sorts, um, which is both a closure and a sort of opening. Um, and the central protagonist here is Makuna Brachpiata, um, which is a weedy ground cover plant. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I close or open perhaps with that anecdote because it's an example of a species that was, in fact, introduced by the Orpam operators um, uh, as a beneficial species, right? And this plant grows at the base of all palm trees and in doing so it helps the soil retain the moisture that the um, all palm tree then requires in order to grow and produce fruit um, fruit from which the palm oil is derived so that's why it's a beneficial species it retains that humidity and moisture um, but what happened on this instance and in many other instances that I documented um, in other plantations um, is that Mukuna Bracteata which was once um, very much under the control and mastery of plantation labourers um, suddenly turned the table on its human counterpart uh, by um, proliferating in a way that was um, unexpected, that was uncontrollable. Um, it made the plantation incredibly difficult to travel through, um, for trucks and fruit collectors to walk um, through. Um, it um, started to reappropriate the moisture and water that it was once redirected to the plant for its own propagation. And, and so it became a really problematic species and the operators had to resort to all sorts of um, more or less biological and organic, uh, you know, substances and chemicals to try to to control its uh, its growth um, and to, to little avail. So why end on the story? Well, because for many of my Papuan friends, there was a kind of um, there was a kind of hope uh, attached to the actions, unexpected actions of this plant that turned the table on the plantation, right? That subverted the plantation project and logic from the inside, not from the outside, right? It was once an ally, or so we thought it was. And then suddenly it started to do things that were very much sabotaging the agribusiness, um, you know, vision and dream. Um, so why is that significant? Well, because it suggests to somebody that, you know, you know, many of whom are now working in the plantation sector for lack of options and opportunities outside plantation systems in terms of employment. It suggests to them that even if one works within the architectures and logics of imperial capitalism, that does not necessarily mean that at some point or at some juncture in the future, there may still be possibilities for revolution, for resistance, for resurgence, for unexpected forms of guerrilla sabotage that can perhaps effectively exert more of an impact because they are unexpected and because they're happening within the infrastructures of capitalism, right? Um, so that's the way in which these, this particular um, species came to exert a sort of affective pull um, as a sort of uh, emblem of potential hopes, um, even within the deep structural violence that the plantation has wrought and continues. Um, to create among marine, both for and again the, against the plantation. Uh, updates since, um, many more cases of um, organisms turning the tables have been documented by my friends in Papua and across the various monocrops um, that now encircle their villages. Many of them have proved um, you know, very, very difficult for the operators to control. Some have given up entirely um, on the plantations and relocated elsewhere. Um, so you could read in that you could read it as a success story of sorts, uh, but it's also not, right? Um, I think it's important to remember that ultimately in these places, the forest is gone, right? The oil palm might no longer be thriving, but the forest has already disappeared. And um, so there's a kind of sense in which there is a double disaster with capitalist projects that promise particular futures, but that don't materialize. And um, so it's really hard to reconcile or to think about this as a success story. And that's certainly the way my friends feel about it. They're, they're very torn, right? Um, about what kind of future 
pictures are possible in the ruin and rubble of long gone forests and plantations never to come in this instance. Um, so some of those events, you know, informed um, perhaps not so much the revisions to this piece, but um, other work that I'm currently trying to think through um, as success stories are are difficult to unearth in, in plantation frontiers, um, even when the plantations don't materialize, right, which is sort of the point of so much of this advocacy is to curb plantation proliferation. Um, but in many instances, um, particularly those where the forest has already been raised, um, you know, what do you do in this, these sort of ruined landscapes, right? Um, what kind of new multi-species futures can be forged? Um, are there ways in which former enemies can become friends? Um, when we're talking about parasites, for instance, those are all big questions that Marine asked themselves, not not just about non-human parasites, but also about the human actors um, who inhabit their lands, um, the migrants, the government actors, um, you know, the, the, the plantation operators. These are all beings with whom they too have to forge other kinds of relations of livability. And the big question of, you know, who will get to be part of the decisions and the dynamics of those relations of living together and dying together is at the forefront of their thinking, not just in terms of the plantation, not just in terms of multi-species relations, but also in terms of the deeply problematic racial ethnic divides that continue to plague possibilities for freedom, autonomy and justice in Papua. Right. And uh, I think you were also about to get to, uh, I suppose, my final question, as is always our final question. So what are you working on now and what can we expect to see and read from you next? All right, so I'm working on a couple of different projects at the moment, um, one of which is uh, very much continuing the uh, thread of thinking that I presented in the first book, um, In the Shadow of the Palms, um, although it's taking the uh, you know the ethnographic material that I was able to gather in a slightly different direction. Um, it's a book that's focused on hunger uh, and the relationship between indigenous foodways and large-scale food production systems like the plantation. Um, it's also different in that it's very much focused on indigenous Papuan women's perspectives on the plantation and on changing foodways um, and on what I'm calling metabolic justice or metabolic injustice. Um, that is to say the ways in which industrial food systems um, operate across differently positioned and privileged guts, both human and non-human, indigenous and non-indigenous, global south and global north. Um, so it's a book about, um, you know, it's an invitation to think about nourishment, um, what it means to eat and be eaten in this age of planetary unraveling, uh, and to think about um, ways in which Marine can teach us other kinds of of obligation towards those who make our food possible. So that's one project. Um, and I'm also working on a separate closer to home um, topic um, here in Australia, um, which follows a thread of multi-species relations and multi-species justice that was central to the first work, but looking at it or transposing it to the context of human wildlife relations um, in New South Wales, where I live, uh, and focusing particularly on that emblematic Australian species that is the kangaroo, um, and trying to unpack some of the meanings and symbolisms and relationships that people here entertain with this cultural icon, which is that once, um, you know, native biodiversity and political symbol and also a problematic pest and targeted um, object of culling. So thinking through, again, relations of justice and violence, but closer to home. That's wonderful. And I, I have more questions that I could ask based just, just on those projects, but I have to wait until I can read them. And perhaps we have you back on the show uh, to discuss those when they're ready. Uh, but for now, I just want to say thank you to you, Dr. Chow, for your research and for your willingness to come on and speak so candidly with us about it today. And I would also like to thank the listeners for streaming and downloading this podcast. Once again, my name is Sam Gleaverman, and this is the Indian Ocean World Podcast.
We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The Indian Ocean World podcast is produced under the Shirk-funded partnership of Praising Risk, Past and Present. The podcast runs in conjunction with the annual speaker series at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, Montreal. 